This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying this show, I highly recommend you also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you're going to receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Our guest today is Ellie Lanning, who is the managing director at Camino Partners. Camino Partners is a $350 million business building and investment platform that helps entrepreneurs create enduring value with values as their compass. It was founded by Daniel Lebetsky, who is the founder of Kind Snacks. Some of the Camino Partners portfolio includes Somos, Cava, and Belgian Boys. We discuss Ellie's time working at Kind, what Kind got right and how they grew, how Camino Partners came together, and what they look for in CPG. Without further ado, here's Ellie. Really enjoyed talking with her. Ellie, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time. How are you? I am good. Good. I'm actually just, uh, we had a 65 degree day yesterday that turned into snow this morning. So I'm recovering from that, but. Oh my gosh. Where are you based? I'm in Boulder, Colorado. Boulder, Colorado. Okay. Wow. Wow. That's quite the extreme. That's quite the extreme. Um, so want to start kind of at the very beginning and how did you start working at Kind? So I guess if I go back, I, I studied marketing in, um, college, uh, I left thinking I wanted to parlay that into kind of what I knew growing up, which was more in the pharmaceutical and medical device arena um, and do sales. Uh, So I I tried that and I very quickly discovered um, that having a career that had very little alignment with my life and lifestyle was not going to be one that uh, worked for me. And I was living in San Diego actually at the time. And this was when, um, you know, Kashi was like really, I would say pioneering the emerging food space. And so I, which did have a lot of alignment with my lifestyle. So I set my sights on 
working there. Um, and I ended up joining uh, the marketing, experiential marketing and communications agency that was doing all of that early work for Kashi. Um, and so I spent uh, several years there really working across Kashi, Bare Naked, got to do work with Honest Tea, Pop Chips, great, uh, you know, great brands that were changing the food landscape at that time. Um, and it coincided with the timing where, um, where Daniel was starting to build out the kind team. So he had for the first call it handful of years, really worked with a small and mighty team of generalists, um, kind of trying to see and prove out if he had something with the concept. And so, um, once, you know, you started to see the makings of, of what the potential was, he started to invest in hiring team with uh, kind of differentiated skill sets. And so I actually took the initial interview with him to test if I had marketable skills. I wasn't like genuinely interested in the opportunity. You know, the brands I was working with at that time were, um, you know, bigger, had more consumer resonance at that time. Um, but then I went and met with him and, uh, I had met with many founders in, in my time prior to him, but he was just very unique. You know, I show up thinking I'm, uh, exploring this like food marketing job and I was trying to understand what he was seeking to achieve. And he's like, we are going to break down barriers between human beings. We are going to make them see their shared humanity. And I thought, well, that is something I know very little about. Um, I might know how to help you sell some of these snack bars if that's kind of part of it. <laughs> hey, that's helpful. And yeah. And so, uh, it, it turned into kind of a series of conversations with him that uh, had me deciding to make the leap and, uh, you know, help build behind his vision. That's amazing. That's amazing. And obviously, um, what kind has grown into, it's really quite incredible. Um, you know, there's, of course, so many, you know, CPG brands out there. Um, what do you think, since you worked at Kind for over 10 years and um, you were obviously very much in the thick of it, what do you think were like maybe the three things that you thought Kind got particularly right that actually made it so successful? Well, I'll, I'll start first and I'll start with this. I won't necessarily say these are in order of priority because they all had to happen together. Um, but I'll start with this one because I actually think it's a bit overlooked um, today. Um, and that one is the product itself, right? And so when you look at how we started with the fruit and nut bars, you know, what kind is most known for the clear packaging you see and, and understand what you're eating, uh, that was not only a product type that, you know, wasn't available here in the U.S., um, but it was also a product type that wasn't being manufactured here. And, and it's a surprisingly difficult um, item to manufacture. And so here you had this product where the, the branding and the packaging around it, you know, th that 
that really kind of hit on the consumer trends and tailwinds. But then what you also had with that is a runway, uh, a really clear head start, because once you, once you have that, others will come, right? It's just a matter of time. And so if you find that in easy to replicate, easy to recreate products, your, you know, your runway is much shorter. And so for, you know, for me starting there in 2010, I say, you know, the first four or five years where I was, you know, a part of building the kind brand, which became more of our moat, the only thing that looked like kind on shelf was kind. Um, and, and you knew, we knew that others were working on manufacturing similar items. It's just that that took, uh, quite some time because it wasn't, you know, a ready-made manufacturing process here. And so I start with that being really important. And, you know, Daniel talks about when he's advising people, he talks about these, um, three phases of like your own, uh, journey to launch a business and it's the creative, right? Where you're dreaming up and building the idea, the critic. And that's where I, some people, I often see people skip that step. And that critic is like, wh- why and what could go wrong with this? Right. And so I think like when I tie that to product, you know, entrepreneurs today need to be really honest with themselves as to like, do they have an incremental benefit product or service, or do they have a truly differentiated one? Uh, Because trading on kind of marketing and brand building alone is a really tough road. And so I think, you know, he definitely went through that phase in his like critic journey. And then, you know, what he says is once you answer that very in a very true and kind of self-reflective way, then you become the crusader. And that's where like nothing, nothing stops you or gets in your way. So that I would say was the the product piece of the equation. Um, The other piece of it um, that I would highlight, and it goes back a little bit to what I was saying about my initial interview with him, which, you know, was very unexpected. The the reason for this brand and business being was always much bigger than the products that it was selling. And so it gave us a one, I mean, that like ignites team, you know, to like wake up every day and not only think about selling healthy foods, but to think about like bringing people together, connecting people across differences. How can our brand play a role in that? Like there's, there was a much bigger opportunity set that that set up for us by being on that journey from like the very early days. So I think that was an important kind of one of the three things, if you will. And then the last one I would say was the culture. So we built a, and you know, we were, this was one of the most important things to us in the everyday, right? Cause it's something you have to focus on every day, but we built an ownership culture that, you know, was supported both 
kind of structurally, like everyone was an owner, had an equity stake in, in the business. We won together. Um, and then there were behavioral pieces of it, right, in terms of how you reinforce that. And so our kind of anchor tenants for our culture was this idea of hungry and kind and that the balance of those is really where, like, the, the unlock was. Um, and so, you know, how do you have a, how do you give way to a team that's waking up every day, like feeling like this is not a company they're working at, this is their company that they are waking up and advancing every day. And that difference just really helps you to outperform the next. No, that's, that's extremely helpful. So, um, it seems like in terms of, um, maybe the three things or, or, or maybe even four things were the differentiation of, of product. They weren't, um, no one was producing that product in the States. Also, no one was, um, no other bar was actually, um, not actually featured, um, uh, that product that was more like nut based. Um, and as well as, um, on the brand side of things, um, um, no one was going kind of clear with their labeling and actually you can actually see the bar, which is very unique and made kind really stand out. Um, and the other two that, you know, I really love that really kind of um, interact with each other of you had this greater mission, this uh, kind of bigger for product, which ignites a team. And as well as when you also have ownership and you have that ownership model um, that also brings in the culture and that also ignites a team because then everyone's kind of on the same mission that actually they want this product to obviously, it's not just a salary. You're also really, you're actually kind of attached to this, this product um, as well, which is, which is awesome. Um, what are some of the things that, you also saw like kind work through or maybe was were like challenging during the kind um, experience um, uh, when you were there that you want to now, you know, as an investor, you want to kind of pass it along to founders. Um, so I would say, well, the culture piece is um, that is <laughs> like, that's a work in progress. That is a, um, like every day, I mean, you have to start with what leaders and uh, company owners that really care. Um, but that is something that I think, um, you know, we uh, were focused on helping our companies with because um, that's just an everyday endeavor. And I think, you know, the other thing that I would say in that, that was something um is, you know, it's it's hard to foresee. Like when I joined Kind, I could have never imagined the kind that is today. We kind of always talked about, like you got to base camp and then you could see, you know, a new kind of plane or horizon. Then you get to that next. And so, you know, what is what is like very difficult in that when you are a fast-growing company is how do you construct your talent strategy with that in mind? You know, there's very few people that can, that are, that they're really valuable at the early stage, but then when something scales to be, you know, half a billion, a billion dollar retail company, like it's, it's different types of talent, it's different needs and challenges. And so we certainly, I think, struggled with, how do you evolve and like still really honor and respect the, the people, the key talent that got you from point A to point B 
And then now when you're moving from point B to point C, you know, I think oftentimes there there is some self-selection in that that happens, but then there are tough decisions that you have to take in that. So I think, you know, that was um, certainly some of the harder moments for us um, in our journey. Uh, The other thing that I would say is, Uh, It goes back to, you know, like the first four or five years that I was a part of Kind. The only thing like it on shelf was it. But then, boy, that fifth and sixth year, the number of things like it on shelf, you know, it exploded. It was like this potential like death by a thousand cuts era where, you know, what we had to figure out was like, how do we stay out ahead? How do we deal with a different type of competition? How do we deal with things that are really trying to draft off of all that we've been building for the last several years. And, um, and you know, another thing was like some of those things looked a lot like it, but did not match in quality, which is bad for the category. People come in and try it and then may never come back. And so what is, you know, how does that reshape your toolkit? Like when you're a category of one that goes to a category of, um, call it lookalikes, what is that strategic toolkit? What is, how does your consumer messaging change? How does your selling strategy and customer messaging change? Um, and, you know, how do you ensure that your business uh, still comes out of that on top? Um, that was certainly a, a piece of it. It's like there were there were pivotal moments where it's like you lost a big account. And like, you know, I, I told, um, I told Daniel as we were going through like a transitioning from managing the day to day, like I had some reflections on the the biggest things I learned from him and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this idea of like, get back up, get back up, get back up. That is a guy that probably wasn't my natural wiring, <laughs> It is through osmosis of, you know, partnering with him for 13 years. And so you're going to have those all the time. And and how do you, uh, you know, quickly frame what it is, what does it mean for your business? And then how do I counteract it? And that might be like trying to win back that customer. That might be building, you know, more deeply in competitive customers such that they have to bring you back in. Uh, and so you're going to have uh, a number of those kind of setbacks on the on the path as well. No, those are all, I mean, excellent points. I um, also can only imagine, you know, when you finally seen you maybe onto something, onto a new um uh, type of category or onto just product, product differentiation that's working. And then it's kind of a gut punch to see all these other brands kind of come up uh, in the same category. And it's, and especially if they're not like the right, you know, quality that actually the actual damaging side, which I didn't think about how that actually damages the category in the long run. Um, and, and it could be uh, detrimental. Um, it's also a funny balance to play because you also don't probably don't want their problems, their products to be too good as well. Um, so it's, um, but, but, but just kind of understanding that and, and how you actually deal with that and um, not get kind of too down and out that that's happening. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so how did, um, so Daniel like launches um, Equilibra, right? And so what's, um, what was, 
what's kind of the journey of of being part of Equilibria and also why the rebrand now or like the difference between um, what you initially set out to do or, or the name versus now with with Camino? So Equilibra was, I would say, something that we kind of set up and named as we were still heads down in the you know majority shareholders and day-to-day uh, management of kind. Um, and so it was, you know, something that we set up and we were parking some capital and assets with, um, but still like our full-time job at that time was continuing to grow and build kind. Um, and so then, you know, we, we had formed a strategic partnership with, um, Mars that was really born from a place of like the next phase of growth for kind was on a global scale. Uh, we, you know, took and tried to do that in a couple markets our own. And we realized, uh, that we wouldn't be able to do it with the level of speed that the opportunity required and the resources. And so we looked for a a partner that was kind of values aligned that had existing global infrastructure. And that led us to, to Mars. And then, um, as of, what that have been end of 2020 into 2021, we transitioned, we're still involved and, um, you know, stakeholders there, um, and have an advisory role. I say we're both, you know, spiritually <laughs> aligned with kind always will be, um, but then have a, a, a stake and continued alignment and, um, support that team there. But then we were able to turn and say, okay, you know, what, what is it that, um, we want to spend the rest of our time on now as there is more time. And so that got us to do some work as to really kind of putting on paper what our philosophy is about business, what our key kind of learnings were. And uh, a lot of that Equilibra didn't translate to that well. Um, And really what we took from that is that there isn't, you know, and, and when we were on the operator side, we were kind of sold often like a playbook approach. Um, and that's not real, you know, like certainly there's uh, transferable lessons, but what works for one brand and business does not mean like applied to the next. It will be a, a recipe for success. And so we really got to this idea of like, Everyone will have its own unique journey, its own twists and turns, its own set of critical decisions. And that, because we took our kind journey that way, is the reason why kind became kind. Because we didn't subscribe to playbooks. We didn't subscribe to, you know, uh, a, we called it the and philosophy. Like your mind so often forces an or, but if you can stop and say, it's not either or, like what's the and here? And so because we didn't subscribe to this idea of playbooks or answers from, you know, what's happened uh, from those ahead, you know, our journey unfolded the way it did. And so Camino, which means journey in Spanish, which is, you know, Daniel's native language, felt like the best translation of that and really communicating to this idea Uh, this idea to entrepreneurs, founders, managing teams that, 
you know, we're excited about that. We're excited to step into your journey, to join you on your journey, to be an informed and informative partner along the way. Um, but we're not going to bring you like a playbook. We're not going to tell you do this the way we did it at kind. We're going to give you our lessons and we're going to draw from those what works for your business or doesn't. I think that's um, a really great point about no playbook. What I, what I kind of feel like when, you know, I, I, for example, just came off of doing um, uh, this panel um, in Austin last week and there were three entrepreneurs, all like fantastic, um, fantastic people on stage telling about their journey and stuff like that. And what was really cool is I talked to one entrepreneur and said, this is so interesting how they think about building their businesses because my my approach is completely different. And I feel like when you actually learn someone else's journey, it actually is a learning for you because it's a great learning for you of like, okay, this resonates and this is actually very similar to what I think for for maybe my brand or, or what I'm building, it makes sense to do. Or and this part maybe doesn't resonate um, period, or maybe doesn't make sense for this. So it's almost like a when you have these conversations, it's almost like a um, learning more about yourself and in terms of what you're what you're building, which is really cool. Well, like I would give you a great example. So you know, kind we did a lot of what's called field marketing. We had a lot of like feet on the street, local ambassadors sampling the product, and so a lo- and we weren't the first to do that, but. Um, a lot of people are like, well, kind did field marketing. We should do field marketing. And I tell people, do you know why kind did field marketing? Because we learned about our like consumer funnel and nine out of 10 people who tried kind would buy and repeat purchase. So that made sense for us. That wasn't, that wasn't us saying, oh, well, this brand did field marketing, so we should do it. It was saying like, that is the most, if you can get someone to try this product, you've got like X number of uh, annual purchases from them. It's a very efficient approach. And so it, that's where, you know, I step back and I try to like help under, you know, break down what people know about their business, the consumer interaction with it, et cetera, because it might not be a trial issue. It might be an education issue. It might be. And so uh, that's why I think, uh, you know, the, the oftentimes this like playbook approach isn't nuanced enough, I guess. Yeah, no, that's a great, really great point. Really great point about um, that there really isn't one right way to, um to scale or to grow um, a brand and maybe paying attention too much of what, what what someone else did and maybe copying that Um, maybe it'll work, but probably it is, as you say, like a lot more nuanced than, than kind of doing that um, uh, per se. Um, So I would love to dive in a little bit more about Camino partners. It's a $350 million fund, but you also as well incubate companies. How do you, how do you think about splitting um, the incubate, like incubating versus actually investing, and and on the investment side, what typically is your average check size? So, as you mentioned, we're unique in that we're kind of business builders and you know partners and hopefully accelerators of um, of other people's businesses. Um, and so, on the building side, um, you know the the first brand that we've um, 
incubated and are co-founding and launching is it has a very, uh, I say, unique set of ingredients. Um, those ingredients are um, co-founders that we've had a lot of time and seat and experience with, right? So Miguel, who's the CEO, was the CMO with us for several years at Kind um, as we were more scaled. Rodrigo, who is a co-founder and head of product there, was um, with Kind for, oh my, I mean, at one point, he, he was one of the early generalists. At one point, he was doing product development, legal, marketing, you name it. Um, and then as we became a more specialized company, he did product development. Um, and then you have Daniel as the third co-founder. And so you've got this idea of time in seat and experience together um, that I help I think helps form kind of speed of trust. Um, then you had what we saw as like a real kind of market white space. And so what we looked at there was how much, Mexican cuisine had really advanced and become more true to what you would experience in Mexico in the restaurant space here in the U.S. But then if you went into the store and saw it on shelf, you know, Rodrigo and, and Daniel and Miguel would tell you, like, when you're in Mexico, you don't get offered a hard or a soft taco like those Hard shell tacos don't exist. Um, that's American Mexican. And so this idea of like what, how you were able to experience their culture in a restaurant setting, they had so much pride for how far that had come. And then such disappointment at their culture not being represented on the store shelf. Pair that with our experience building food businesses and you've got kind of speed of trust, you've got market opportunity that plays against our existing skill sets. And so uh, that's where, you know, that's much more of an investment of our time in the upfront than it is of capital, because you're not talking about, um, you know, things where you're, uh, you're just talking about smaller drips of capital to, to get something like that off the ground. Um, so I think for that, on that side, we think of like the way we really think about it is a bit of like a road tested kind of founder and entrepreneur that, you know, hopefully we know somewhere through our existing network and connections that has an idea that is, um, that we believe that there really is kind of white space and differentiation, um, and that uh, we believe we have strong values alignment with because the only thing I can guarantee you is that things will not go to plan. Uh, so like we got to be able to do that well together. Um, and it's an emotional, like starting a business from scratch, it's an emotional journey. And so, you know, that's like... <laughs> Uh, that's probably that piece of it is even more valuable than the capital and how you support each other in the early days. Um, on the other side of things, we are looking for what we call more ready to scale businesses. And so these are, you know, businesses that have already, um, 
really kind of proven and found early demand vectors um, that we see the potential to go across multiple channels. Um, and that really the name of the game is going to be keeping your foot on driving that demand, but building the infrastructure and the practices within the business to keep up with that, which was you know true to our experience at Kind. And in those businesses, we're trying, again, it's a deployment of our time uh, as one of the higher value things that we bring to the table. We're not, you know, showing up for a quarterly a quarterly board meeting where I, in the case of like Belgian boys, you know, I meet with a nook weekly um, and we're sorting through kind of what are the biggest things on her plate as, you know, she's a first time founder, CEO. How can I help to triage those? How can I think about where our team is uh, aiding her team? How can we think about like talent gaps that she has? So it's a very active and engaged partnership. And so with that, we have to be able to deploy enough capital to then have reason to deploy that time. And so our at the average investment size we target is 20 million. No, no, that's really helpful. And so, and the first company you were talking about, by the way, that was Somos, right? That's Somos, correct. Cool. And with Somos, that- Hopefully you tried that at Expo. I didn't. I I didn't. Unfortunately, oh, no. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I definitely. I. I it's okay. I'm sorry I, for you. I, yeah, I know. I know. You. I I I clearly clearly I just didn't do expo right. Clearly, I didn't. But um, next time, next time. But with Somos, now that was incubated. Um, while while you were still at Kind, right under Kind of Kind with I just had like this partnership with with Mars. Um, or no. no it, it no, wasn't. okay. No, so that is that has no connection to kind, other than the fact that the two co-founders were people that we had worked with at kind. But like Miguel, Miguel had left kind and was at Cholula, and so that was kind of getting back together with him. Rodrigo had left kind, um, was in Mexico, which is actually where we produce all of that food. Um, so he was, had moved on to other things. So the, the heritage, you know, it, it has some talent from different stages, but it has no like entity connection to kind or Mars. Got it. Okay. No, that's, that's really helpful. Um, how, how do you also, and also it's, it's, it's really interesting because you either are incubating, you're right there you know, in the beginning, or you're at the growth stage, it seems right where you're at the 20 million, like you don't, it seems like you don't really touch uh, per se, like the seed or the series A per se, unless maybe it, it might be one of your own uh, companies that are incubated, but you might not go um, outside and, 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 and take a minority uh, position in, in a company that you haven't incubated in that range, which is quite an interesting strategy. Um, on the on the incubation side, I, I really loved how you talked about Somos and really like like the problem that you saw and as well as also talking a little bit about the difference between like Tex-Mex American Mexican food and, you know, maybe traditional Mexican food, which I also appreciate. Um, how do you, what's that process like though, when you're thinking about as well, incubating maybe future um, companies, is, is it an entrepreneur that kind of comes to you all uh, that maybe you've known for a long time, like in, in this case with, um, um, with the entrepreneurs that were part of Somos that you knew them for for a long time, they were they, they worked at Kind for a long time, and they they come with you an idea, and then you all um, 
you know, eventually build a product together? Or is it, um, or is it, you know, um, you or, or Daniel might have an idea for, uh, for it. You maybe, um, you maybe, uh, start building the company or scene and then you might, you might go and also maybe find some, an, an outside partner to come in and maybe run that company. We think of it through both. Um, okay. we're, I would say we're kind of open for business in both ways. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, you know, and, and it is funny cause Daniel and I do have this debate around, um, you know, he probably leans towards us being the ideators. And I probably lean towards building on the thinking of the ideator. Um, because I think founders are like, I think it's hard to replicate. <laughs> um, and so this idea of like a hired founder, um, uh, is kind of tricky. And the way that I see, you know, bridging it is that as we have, um, as we have the ideas internally, like we would be very, very early in bringing someone in. Right. Um, and so like if, if the spark happened, you know, in Daniel's mind, in my mind, in any of our team members' minds, uh, that would be the spark but then what it actually gets built into being, you know, we want someone who feels authorship, ownership, et cetera, of that, because we understand and respect like just how important that is for what's ahead. Okay. No, no, no it's really useful that you, you, you think about it in both ways in terms of you all being the ideator. Although I, I, I see your point that if you are the ideator, it's hard to kind of outsource per se a CEO, even if they are, you know, like the co-founder. Um, it's it's different, of course, to do that if the company already has sales, already, you know, is in the kind of that growth stage, and then you can bring someone in that really understands maybe the category or um or you know have has built a brand before or has um or has maybe been part of another brand's journey and in, in in a senior capacity, but, um, but understand from the very beginning to kind of have that buy-in that's, that's pretty challenging to do. Um, how, how are you also thinking about on maybe the growth on the growth side of, uh, on, on more of like the growth stage investment, um, uh, side of things, how are you thinking about today's market as well in consumer? I know like consumer is, um, there's been said like a lot on the show that like consumer is, you know, not the most popular, of, of, of things to invest in, um, especially when you compare it to kind of tech, which is, you know, part, part of the goal of the show. To, margins, uh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. 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 You actually have, um, marginal costs who knew. Um, but, um, how are you thinking about like these times, um, currently and, um, and investing? It's interesting. I would say, you know, we're proceeding with caution and we're just trying to be really kind of thoughtful and smart in our study of the opportunities. I think, you know, one of the things that I would say, and I, you know, you went to Expo, I was there as well. You know, someone asked me like what my big takeaway there was. And, you know, part of it is that there's too many small businesses going after not big enough trends. Right. And so I think that's some of the challenge, certainly from the investment side, is that, you know, if you're. Could you give an example of like trends that you actually don't think are very large? 
Well, I think like I would say, you know, you, you've seen it a bit and I know everyone's like, oh, this is, you know, what everyone's been like crapping on the past uh, year or whatever. But I actually saw it starting to happen last year. I would say I felt like every third booth was a plant based meat offering. I was 100%. like, you know, it has 100%. become novel now to have something in its real form. It's become novel to eat meat as meat. Yeah. You are now if, uh, walking a show like that. You are much more likely to eat plant-based meat instead of a real meat option. So, um, and I think that I, I'm not, you know, some people would say there's like no market there. I think that there is a market there. I think the, the size of the market and it's actual, it's actual growth rate is smaller and slower than what, uh, you know, what people probably felt as they were innovating three or four years ago. And so what, you know, what I would say has happened there is you have too many brands and too many offerings for not a big enough consumer base. Um, you know, the other thing, like I, you know, I lived through a time when I first started in the industry where it was like, there was some greenwashing, then there was like gluten-free washing, you know, gluten-free water. Like, oh my gosh, how did you do that? Uh, but I think you're starting to see that too with um, plant-based. And so like, you know, last week I saw plant-based gummy bears. Um, how big is that consumer market? How many people are consuming gummy bears that say, I need a, I need a plant-based option? And when I'm making that choice, like I'm not thinking when I eat gummy bears, you know, I'm allowing myself, I'm allowing myself to not think if I am eating gummy bears. So I think there, there are things where you see these, you know, these kind of core trends, like extrapolated in a very weird way where, um, it, it's hard to say kind of like what market size there would be there. And, um, and, and what I think is challenging as an investor. So like, I wouldn't say that we would never invest in plant-based meat. I do think like, I think it's an important part of the future. I think it's a category that should exist. I don't think, and I, I'm a proponent of consumer choice, but it reaches a point of diminishing return. And so I think there's too much consumer choice in that market right now that needs to shake itself out. And that's a, uh, that's a daunting task for an investor to pick the winner. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, what I, what I wonder, and I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on this, just on the subject of, of meat, will kind of cult, uh, like culture meat, is that really what's going to, per se, of these alternative kind of traditional, you know, traditional meat, uh, the cow, the chicken, um, will like cultured meat, will that actually be the one that actually prevails over like plant-based meats in, in the long run once like the, once the uh, technology is there? I don't know. This is where like, I'm a simpleton, you know, like one of the beauties, I think it, it totally depends on like your philosophy. Right. And so like we, uh, you know, kind was basically like, we would have been a great friend to the caveman, you know, like we basically were a more convenient, like 
uh, way to forage, like nuts and seeds since the beginning of time, right? Those have been good things like the earth made it, it made it like for humans to survive, sound nutrition. Um, And so in some ways we had a very like simple nutrition philosophy that was tied into that way of thinking. Um, You know, I think it's Michael Pollan's like uh, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Um, And so I think like that's been true for, you know, uh, longer, I mean, you can't trace back to like an ancestor that that wouldn't have been true for. And so I think we're, um, or me, and then kind was certainly built in that way, or more simple in that thinking. So I actually think that there's some interesting, like one of the propositions in that space that I like a lot is this business Abbott's Butcher, where, you know, you look at her ingredient deck, um, I feel like I could make that out of my own pantry. Now I couldn't cause I don't know the processing pieces of it, but like, and, and it's culinary and it's not, I, I don't know. I like my food to be more like culinary, simple, real ingredients that I fall off a little bit when it gets into the science. That's personal preference. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's interesting. So at our last in 2022, we did a South by Southwest event in Austin with um, Jason Carp, And Jason also was, I would say, um, not like directly quoting him, but I would say that that was one of our main discussions, you know, kind of like um, tech food versus, you know, non-tech food. And he, and um, he was um, um, just because, and I mean, he was um, less interested, I would say, in tech food, just because we don't know how good it is for you in the long run, right? And so, um, and so that was, it just sounded like a, a parallel um, um, with what he was saying. Well, the other thing that I would say, yeah, the other thing that I would say as it relates to food, it's funny because you're saying that just jogged a memory for me. So my brother works in medical devices and he and his one of his uh, business partners got this investment opportunity in a food company a few years ago. And they called me like, so how do we, like, how should we diligence this? How do we look at this? How do we evaluate this opportunity? And the first thing I said to them was, and cause it was food tech. Uh, I said, have you tried it? And they were like, no. And I said, well, people believe it or not still really want food to taste good. Yes. So the, like uh, the first screen, like that should be your first step, but it's funny to say that because that I think in some of this craze has become a, a little bit overlooked too. Like people still want food that tastes good. 100%. I think on a, on a more lighter note, since we're talking a little bit about being bearish, maybe on plant-based meats, what were some, um, of like maybe trends that maybe you were actually bullish on during expo that you were, and you were kind of maybe it it could be surprised to see, or just, just overall, you know, this is kind of very, very open, but, um, but, but just your overall thoughts. So I would say, you know, if if last year I saw kind of this abundance of um, plant-based meat, um, 
that again, I'm not bearish about. I just would say a different growth path than originally, a different explosion of it becoming mass than, or inflection point rather. It's a great way to put it. And not to say that there might not be winners. There will definitely be winners of, of companies that do really well. It's just it's just a question of how big the market will actually How big be. and when. How, how big and when. Yes, exactly. Yep. Uh, so I would say where where you saw that subside a little bit, I definitely saw more come in it, in way of like, I'll call it the global consumer, right? And so, and I think that's a very interesting space um, as you look at just the, you know, the macro trends and the diversification of our, you know, domestic population, uh, you can see more of that in the future. And it's interesting because I like to sometimes like close my eyes and imagine, uh, you know, for us, like in Somos, there's still this like what's called the ethnic aisle, right? And it's got like maybe at one end, like Mexican offering somewhere in the middle, it splits to like Asian and Thai. And and it's kind of like this, this uh, aisle that, the retailers are still really trying to figure out um, because contrast that to like, why is Italian not really considered ethnic here? Right. And so if you start to kind of think about those things and like imagine what a shopping experience could be like in, you know, maybe 10, 10, 15, 20 years time, where we are just much more like global in our cuisine, right? And the store kind of represents that. And um, so I think you're starting to see um, a lot of that kind of take, uh, get some footing. And that's certainly an area that we're excited about and interested in. The other thing that I saw a lot um, and is also exciting, but then requires, I think, further study because uh, I think it's an easy area to, you know, have some hollow marketing claims. Um, but it was um, brain health and, you know, food as a source for brain health. And I think that is an area, again, when you look at the macro trends, when you look at the number of people who are going to be over 65, when you look at the prevalence of dementia and cognitive, uh, you know, uh, impediments, um, and then you start to think about, you know, I'll say my generation that's assuming a caretaker role, and then the way we start to think about preventative care, um, and as we're assuming that kind of caretaker seat, I think that there is a ton, um, you know, to be unlocked there. Um, but I would say we approach, like I approach that space with a lot of caution, uh, because, you know, we don't want like placebo science. That's not good for anyone. Um, but that was an area I started to see, um, many more like brick to forehead kind of offerings in that space. Yes. I, I uh, I very much agree with you. I also thought there was um, a lot of um, 
a lot of companies that I quite thought were interesting that had really interesting um, kind of indulgent snack products that had a bit slightly like a better for you um, uh, angle um, uh, for them or, or part like one, one that I um, like, even like a like like a um like like a hot like a um like a pizza bite that was gluten free for example that I thought was absolutely delicious um absolutely delicious um and so um I also thought that was quite like an interesting trend as well um and of course others uh, there's other examples as well to that but um I thought that was really interesting thank you so much for coming on this was such a fun conversation yeah thank you and I'm sorry about my boring background. I might end up painting my wall as I look at yours. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Um, Really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. And there you have it. It was a pleasure time with Ellie. Ellie, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. If you are interested in investing in startups, but you don't know where to start or how to do it, please stay tuned for my conversation with Gabriel Shin from Vobin from Carta that helps you launch your own fund. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really, really appreciate it. So, and what are typically like the fees that are associated um, uh, with whether you set up a, a Vobin account or even if you um, if you want to, you know, run um, your investment for, uh, portfolio off of um, Vobin um, or another one? What's what's typically your um, um, the cost that, that you're going to uh, incur? Yeah, from a cost perspective, we're extremely Price competitive. Um, so if you went through the traditional route, you'd have to go to a, you know a fund lawyer. You'd have to go to a, you know high street bank or you know a major bank to get a bank account for the investment vehicle, and then you'd have an administrator kind of administer the SPV until there's an exit. Um, overall, costs can be north of you know twenty k. Um, when you go through a platform like Vobon, you know, we charge about 8K, uh, which includes the lifetime administration of the SPV, including the legals, the banking, the investor onboarding, and the administration. So um, rel- relatively cost uh, effective. Um, I would say, you know, in terms of deal size, it can be anywhere from 50K allocations on upwards. How does that 8K kind of get broken down? Is that, um, if you're like a pretty active um, I guess, like, if you're a pretty active investor, maybe you're not using the platform for just one investment, you're using it for several. Does that come up, d- does that kind of churn out to like 8K annually, or maybe part of that 8K um, annually? Or, or how does it kind of work as a function? Yeah, definitely. So it's it's a transactional fee. So once, you know, you have, you know, significant interest from investors wanting to invest into, you know, the allocation or the company that you're fundraising for, um, it'd be paid on the back end. So once you've successfully fundraised, so there is no economics upfront. It's only once you've successfully fundraised, uh, which is, you know, extremely beneficial. There's no downside risk for you to create an SPV. So there has been, you know, clients where, you know, they're structuring an SPV, but, you know, their anchor investor falls through or, you know, it's super competitive and, you know, the lead VC just takes the full round for themselves. So they're not left carrying the bag of, you know, creating a legal entity and, you know, bearing the costs. Um, So it's only paid once you've successfully fundraised. Um, And it's a one-time fee, which covers the lifetime administration. 
So, and that's one-time fee. So that would be, you have to pay 8K every time, for example, you set up like a new SPV. Yeah, that's correct. So it'd be one-time fee for that single uh, investment vehicle. And then, you know, if you're looking at the lifetime administration uh, for venture capital investments, it can be anywhere from seven to 12 plus years. Um, so, you know, we, we'd manage it through uh, until then. If you are loving the show, I highly recommend checking out the newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. I'm also doing some more events, so you'll also be the first one to receive information about those. 